All right, I'm going to start with a confession for the sake of the guys upstairs. <clears throat> I've been so proud, excuse me, all of a sudden I need some water. I've been so proud of myself the last few Sundays, I haven't forgotten to turn my microphone on. <laughs> and I didn't forget to turn it on today. <clears throat> I just forgot to turn it off after the last service. <clears throat> So the battery may go out sometime. Uh, if you notice, I guess you'll know. I don't know what happened to my voice. I'm just touched by the emotion of it all. <laughs> I'll try it again. <clears throat> okay. Well, I, I better get down to business. While I have a voice, while I have a microphone, we'll get to it. I'm going to take you to the Old Testament, to the book. I guess I'm going to take you to the Old Testament. Thank you, Jerry. I didn't even have to ask. <clears throat> it's just going to be a very dry sermon. <clears throat> well, let's see how far I can go before I have to take another swig. Um, and, and it is water, folks. It is water. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to take you to the book of Joshua. And now, all I have to say today won't mean a thing to you unless you really want to follow the Lord. And even my reading of the scripture won't mean anything to you unless you're really serious about following the Lord. So let's turn to the third chapter. Where we are, Moses has led the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. They've had their 40 years in the wilderness. Now I've got to tell a story before I go on. <clears throat> you think, thank you, <laughs> Thank you, cough drops. Um, you think I'm dependent on Jerry. You think that this relationship is just one way. But let me tell you what happened this morning. Between the services, I was sitting in the study resting a little bit. He came in to bring me some food, and, and, and that was nice. And then he couldn't get his key out of my, my knob, doorknob. He couldn't get it out. He couldn't get it out. Uh, Jerry, would you like to show the nice people the key that I took out of the door and gave to you? Right there it is. I never can fix anything. I rescued his key. <laughs> and my wife was in the last service, so she doesn't know what I did, and she won't believe me when I tell her. All right. So, the children of Israel have survived their 40 days in the wilderness. They are ready to cross the Jordan River to go into the promised land. Moses is no longer leading them. The mantle of leadership fell on Joshua's shoulders, and he's now in charge. And we pick up the story in the third chapter of the book of Joshua. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, Tomorrow I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I'm with you as I was with Moses. I'm going to translate six <laughs> declarative sentences, if you will, or declarative comments into instructions for people who are really serious about following the Lord. Here's order number one. Move out from your positions. Verse three. <clears throat> when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Now, now the, the Ark that is being talked about is really just kind of a simple chest, a simple box that represented the presence of God with the people. And the priests were in charge of it, and when they went forward, the people were to follow. It's just that simple. You follow the presence of the Lord. What's interesting here is the people had been camped for just three days where they were. Now, they'd been in the wilderness for 40 years, camped three days, probably already fairly comfortable where they were. It doesn't take us very long at all to get comfortable where we are. I, I was taught a lesson a number of years ago on a, on a Palm Sunday morning. We changed the service. We had a wonderful music um, program in our church, and I just thought it would be wonderful on that one Sunday, Palm Sunday, to not have a sermon and just have music the entire hour. And to be honest with you, it was wonderful. It was spoiled, however, as the people were leaving that morning and coming up to me and saying, oh, next year, let's not have a sermon also. <laughs> that quickly, they thought, We've got a, a, a good tradition going here. Let's keep it going. Interesting. When something good happens, we want to hang on to it. Jesus and his disciples, Peter, James, and John, were on the Mount of Transfiguration. You'll remember this famous incident. And up in a vision, they all had the same vision. They all saw it. There was Jesus, high and lifted up, and on one side of him was Moses, the great leader of the Israelites, and on the other side was Elijah, the greatest of their prophets. And there was their leader, there with these great historical figures. It was an awesome moment. And Peter took advantage of the moment, and he addressed Jesus, and he said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I want to encapsulate this moment. I want to memorialize this moment. I want this moment never to be lost. It's a good thing. Except when, when you get so hung up on the moment that you forget that you've been called out to move out from your positions and not just to stay right there. This lesson was reinforced for me a few years ago. Well, a number of years ago now, I was in Kentucky, Cane Ridge, Kentucky. There's, a, there's an old meeting house Cane Ridge, Kentucky, because back in the early part of the 19th century, there was a revival that was sweeping America, and it hit hard in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, and that meeting house was the, the, uh, the center of it. People came from all around, I mean thousands of people came around for this weeks-long revival meeting. That was such an important place that some people decided that it needed to be maintained for, in perpetuity. And on this occasion, I went to see it. That, that meeting house is still there, well-preserved, 
as it was. Now, the reason that it's well-preserved, as it was, is that they built a, a building over it to keep it sheltered from the storms. And they turned what was a very dynamic place into a shrine that tourists can go and see. It doesn't take a lot to turn a dynamic place into a shrine of historical interest where nobody gets saved anymore. So, order number one, move out from your position. Order number two, follow the ark and the priests that you may know the way you shall go. I'm not proposing to you, and I know your new pastor won't propose to you, change for the sake of change. Movement for the sake of moving. No, you need to know where you're going. Now, these people were to follow the ark and the priesthood. They would take their direction from them. There would be order. There would be system, but they would be moving. Us? Well, we follow Jesus. We keep returning to Scripture to learn more about Jesus so that we'll know which way to go as a church, as individuals. Jesus is our creed. He's our model. He's our captain. I want to underscore that by saying we follow him. We don't follow John Wesley. We don't follow Martin Luther. We don't follow John Knox. We don't follow Alexander Campbell. And I could go on with the list. Now, all of these were giants in the faith, and all of them have contributed to what we have become, and we owe them a debt of gratitude. But we must see farther than they saw. We must go beyond where they were. Isaac Newton, explaining how he was able to do what he did, he, his was a seismic shock that hit the scientific world, and we've not been the same, thanks to Isaac Newton. But when he was explaining what he did, he said, I stood on the shoulder of giants. Well, so do we. And I've named some of our giants. But we go beyond where they were. I, I can put it this way, I think, so simply. I'm, I'm not a disciple of any of these people that I mentioned, or many others that I could mention. I'm, I'm not a disciple of a disciple of Christ. I'm a disciple of Christ. I hope I've made that clear. Because that's, that's our unity, that's our inspiration. We, we hang on to, we follow. As they followed the priests and the ark, we follow Jesus where he leads. I, I stepped into the seniors' ohana group on Monday, and Claudia Murphy was getting ready to lead them in a book of, uh, study of the book of Acts, and I was really glad for that. We returned to the book of Acts from time to time to see how the church was in the beginning when all of the elements that make a church a church were there. And we, we follow that example. We draw as close to that as we possibly can. We remain serious about Bible study here so that, so that we'll know where to go. Because, order number three, we're to go where we've never been before. For you have not passed this way before, the scripture says. Familiarity, <clears throat> familiarity does breed contempt. So does fear of change. So does failure to love. Lots of things breed contempt. But familiar, familiarity also breeds complacency. So we want to be very, very careful. Lest we give way to our own laziness, our own dedication to our own comfort, 
so that we will not have the courage to go where we have never gone before. There's so many many ways to look at this. I I want to tell you about back in the early part of the 80s, 1980s, I was back in Indianapolis visiting a church I used to be the pastor of. Now, some of you who have followed the development of, the, of, of computers and internet, etc., will recognize that was very early in the computer era. In fact, all the time I was serving that church, we didn't have a computer. I had to type everything out. Well, I went back to the office, and my old secretary had a new computer, and she showed it to me, and she was bragging about it. All she said, Roy, you need to get a computer. This will save you so much time in your writing. Oh, I said, I don't think so, Joanne. I think I've learned how to make, to take every shortcut in writing my books. I don't, I don't think so. But what she said stuck with me. So when I got back to Arizona, I got a computer. <laughs> and she was right. I was stunned. It, it, it cut out two-thirds of my time and cut out a secretary. I didn't tell her that part. <clears throat> but my, my, my world changed because of that computer. It was so exciting, we decided we, we needed to computerize the church office. So we bought our first computer. It was a big deal. It was, and we bought the latest and the fanciest computer we could buy. We had not one, but two floppy disk drives. <laughs> and that was back when... Floppy disks flopped. You know, they, they were, some of you were, what, you, would, you don't even know what I'm talking about. You were not even born then. <laughs> He's nodding his head. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about, really? How, how do you? I'm impressed. I know, you study them in history. <laughs> well, so, so two, eight, inch floppy disk, and guess what we had? 64K of memory. Yeah. Now, let me tell you one other thing that you who are making fun. This was a big deal. We bought that computer, and we got with it a little Diablo dot matrix printer package deal. All of that. 1981, 82. All of that for $10,000. We had to have a fun drive to raise the money to buy the computer. Now, do you think that everybody was in favor of our buying computer for the office? We heard from one or two. But you see what we had to do? We had to go where we had never been before. Or to be honest with you, that church probably wouldn't exist today. I mean, these are little things. But they come up all the time for us. We... And we're always being challenged. I remember the chairman of our elders. At the time we were building, getting ready to build our new building. When I, when I went to that church, Tim, I'm going to take a little longer today because these captive audience and there's not another service coming. So <clears throat> when, we, when we moved out to Mesa, if I've told you this before, I apologize, but I, I, it, it really says what I'm trying to tell you this morning. We went to a church that was in a building that was two years old. When we went out there for the interview, I said to Joy, oh, the good thing is if we come to this church, I'll never have to be in another building program. 
One year later, I overheard the elders talking about, you know, we need a new building. Two years after that, we, we moved out of that building and began the process to move into a new building. We went out and we, we bought 30 acres. <laughs> we bought 30 acres. I, that year, I was running around the country because I was president of our national convention, and I, and I came back, and the chairman of the new property acquisition committee asked me to come to a meeting, so I went to the meeting, and he and the other members of the committee described for me the property that they had found, 30 acres, actually 32 acres, I guess, 32 acres, and they told me where it was, and uh, told me that it had already been planted for a development, but the, the development had fallen through. We could get that. We could get that property for only a million and a half dollars. They saw the white take over my face. And I turned to Judy, my administrative assistant, and I asked, Judy, how much money do we have in the new property fund? She said, $60. <laughs> oh, don't worry about it, they said to me. The chairman said, we're not going to offer that kind of money. We're just going to offer them a million. We bought that property. I told that story later back in Indiana, and the people who knew that <laughs> they'd been to Arizona, they said, think of it, million dollars for 30 acres of kitty litter. <laughs> they knew our sandy soil. Anyway, we, we bought it, and I won't go into all the rest of it, but we had a congregational meeting, and this is the part that I wanted to tell you. We had a congregational meeting. We had already bought the property, that is, we were making payments on the property. We had to sell the building we were in in order to build a new building, and so we had this informational meeting for the congregation to tell them about it, and the people I, were very nervous. And the chairman, the same chairman that I mentioned to you, was handling the questions that came. And as I remember, almost every question he answered the same way, which was, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And then he finally put the cap on it toward the end, speaking irreverently, but he said, but you know, our guy did the world in six days, which really didn't say anything and said everything. We're going to trust in God to move forward. We're going to go where we haven't ever gone before. Let me give you a personal example of something I've been talking about now for 25 years. I was to do some lecturing in, in uh, New Zealand for a convention, put together a tour group. We had a good time traveling together. One week before we were to leave, and Joy was not going with me, but she, she said to me, and she was dead serious, she said, I don't want you to go to New Zealand. I said, Joy, I've got to go. I've got that speaking. I've got these people. I don't want you to go to New Zealand. Why? Well, she told me why. She'd been listening to Good Morning America, and Good Morning America had a series of segments on New Zealand, and she discovered in those segments that New Zealand was the home of skydiving and bungee jumping. <clears throat> I don't want you to go to New Zealand, because she was afraid I might try that. <clears throat> I said, Joy, you don't have to worry about that. She didn't have to worry about it. I had already made up my mind I was going to bungee jump. <laughs> no sense worrying about it. So we went to New Zealand, and the day came. But when the day came, Mike Pryor was my, my partner uh, and my right hand on that trip. And he's going to be here in a, two or three weeks to talk to you about your wills and trusts. And uh, we got up that... 
I never thought, I didn't put that together. <laughs> uh, that was irrelevant to the story, okay? <laughs> he was my roommate. We got up that morning and he said, well, are you going to do it? And I said, Mike, I'm not. It was July. I was getting a cold. I had three days of speaking coming up. I said, I don't dare do it, Mike. He said, well, I think I will anyway. I said, I think you should. So we took the tour bus. We parked it at the bridge where bungee jumping had originated. The group got out. They went up on the bluff so they could watch Mike. I, I went with him to offer moral support. And he was signing in, and I was pacing behind him. And I remember three thoughts that dominated my mind the, the, <laughs> the day before. Uh, one of the women... Uh, and. and there was no introduction to this comment, but we were having coffee, and she said, you know what they call a bungee jumper? And we said, no, and she said, a dope on a rope. <laughs> and that led to a discussion of, of the danger, the risk involved. So I'm thinking of the danger, the risk, and I'm, pack, uh, I'm pacing, and I, I stopped myself, and I said, now, Lawson, you're always preaching about faith. That was the first thought. Second thought? You're 55 years old, and it's been a good life. <laughs> Third thought, you may not ever be able to do this again as long as you live. So I went in and signed up. There were, it was a little humiliating. There were two lines, one for real men and one for women and children, and they put you in the line according to your weight. Guess where I had to go? <laughs> So I signed up, and then we went out to the bridge, a little platform built out on the side of the bridge, sat there. I had two moments of nervousness. The first one was when they brought the professional equipment, a bath towel and a rope. <laughs> and the bath towel was put around the ankles and the rope around it. That led to the second moment of nervousness. I had to get from where I was to the edge of the platform, and my ankles were tied. So I had to go this way. And I thought, you know, I could fall. <laughs> and then the countdown started five, four, three, two, one, and I dove. And on the way down, I thought, if I ever do this again, I hope I dive better than that time. <laughs> and I got to the end of the rope, and then I began bouncing. And it was the most relaxing, wonderful experience. And then I just dangled. The people up on the bluff thought I had broken something. I just dangled, and the boat came out from the shore and poured me into it. And it was one of the most delightful experiences I've ever had in my life, which I would not have had if my wife had had her way. <laughs> you could all, I could invite you all up here and you can tell me the story of when you did something you never thought you would ever do and you had an experience you never thought you'd ever have because you were 
outside your comfort zone, doing something different. There's a whole tribe of people that are outside their comfort zone. And they've got to cross the Jordan River. And they've got to go into a land they've never been in before. And they're hearing the word of the Lord. But an interesting word of the Lord, this fourth order, is this one. Don't become too cozy with the Lord. That's verse 4. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, a distance of about 2,000 cubits. Don't come near it. Isn't that interesting? They're following the Lord, but the Lord is saying, don't come too close. There's still something to be said about fear of the Lord. I mean, here the distance, 2,000 cubits, that's a long distance. A cubit is the distance from your fingertip to your elbow, considerably longer in the case of some people than others. So it's not an accurate measurement, but it's an approximation, but the approximation you fully understand. Don't try to cozy up to God. There was a well-known jurist of a number of years ago, Judge Learned Hand, and he was welcoming after swearing in a group of immigrants who were now citizens of the United States. And he said to them, the spirit of democracy is a spirit which is not too certain it is right. I have to tell you, the older I get, the more I'm afraid of people who are certain that they are right about everything. And that certainty sometimes affects us religious types. And we become so certain, it's as if God and I are just, uh, we're just real cozy with one another. We're, we're, we're buddies. He's vouchsafed all the truth to me. No, folks, we don't presume on our friendship with Jesus. We don't take for granted our redemption. We don't claim Jesus as our exclusive personal servant and possession. We treasure his friendship. But we are first, last, and always servants of Christ. And servants don't cozy up to the master. If they do, they tend to get too complacent, too self-centered, too lazy. And there's danger in that. I read this just this week. The headline, Church Removes Coffee and Donuts, Riot Ensues. <laughs> Anderson, Nebraska. Staff of the Fleetwood Christian Church are still picking up the pieces after a riot on Sunday. That wasn't our desired outcome, said Executive Pastor Mike Millenhouse as he scratched his head in bewilderment. It really boiled down to an economic analysis. I mean, no one really puts a dollar in the jar anymore. Millenhouse was speaking of the church's decision to discontinue offering coffee and donuts on, the, on Sunday mornings. On the honor system, just put a dollar in the jar. The FCC staff was expecting some pushback from the congregation, but the intensity of the reaction caught them by surprise. People began screaming when they found out the coffee was gone, Millenhouse said. Grown men began wrestling in the middle of the lobby. Children cried out in horror when they couldn't find donuts. Many people never entered the, worship, uh, the auditorium for worship. They were too busy yelling at each other. Uh, FCC member Benjamin Osgood seemed to speak for many. Quote, I rely on this church not only to preach the gospel, but to give me caffeine to stay awake during the sermon. 
And donuts. My kids love them. What am I supposed to give them for breakfast? They stopped eating cold cereal on Sundays a long time ago. Barbara Shehak said, she's 85 years old. She says, I look forward to my Sundays at Fleetwood. I get a little Jesus and a little donut. Now I'm just left with a little Jesus, and I'm not sure what to think about that. <laughs> Millenhouse said, I think we're recovering nicely. <clears throat> We've sent out an email announcing the return of coffee and donuts for this Sunday. We're also adding bacon. I think we'll be okay. <laughs> I walked out I walked out of last service, and guess what I saw? The biggest load of food on that table out there that I've seen since I've been here. I think they went out and bought food after I read this article. Well, it's, obviously, it's a satire, a spoof, but a lesson maybe for people who feel too comfortable, so comfortable that they've forgotten what church is all about, and how holy is the God we worship. Therefore, order number five, people, dedicate yourselves. Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Just two thoughts in that one sentence. One, sanctify yourself. That is, dedicate yourself, consecrate yourself, set yourself apart for the task ahead. And then two, if you'll do that, prepare for amazement. It'll be scary ahead. There will be battles. There will be wonders. That same John Scott Williams, who was the chairman that conducted that uh, congregational meeting I told you about, on another occasion, talked to all of us in the eldership, urging us to pray for one another. Because he said every time this church gears up to do something significant, it's under attack. That's kind of how life works, I think. And it's a good thing to remember with this instruction to the people that Jesus established a lay movement. A lay movement. We don't rely on pastors to be religious for us, priests to offer our sacrifices for us. We're in this together. From the beginning, we've been in it together. And if we're in it together, then that means we're all responsible. That means we all dedicate ourselves. And we don't cop out expecting somebody else to be religious for us. I've been, I've been watching the Lord work for a long time now. And I've come to a conclusion. God does do amazing things. But he does those amazing things primarily through people. And as a result, some Pretty ordinary people become pretty amazing themselves. Our responsibility then is to be consecrated, to dedicate ourselves, to follow the Lord, to do the Lord's work. And if we do, the Lord will do amazing things among us. And some amazing people will arise from within. Last order. Leaders, this is an easy one and a hard one. Leaders, lead. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. And they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. I used to teach leadership. You, all, you really can't teach leadership. It too, I think, was a historical study. But one of the things I had to underscore again and again is that most of the time we get ourselves into trouble because our leaders don't lead. They take the pulse. 
They take polls. They don't lead from a set of principles. And so the people are confused. That's true nationally, internationally. That's true congregationally. That's true in a family as well. Leaders? Well, I should quote that great theologian Lee Iacocca here, who said, don't just stand there. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. That's it. Well, we've just elected some leaders here. We just called a new senior pastor. We're asking them to lead. I made a study of leadership, looked up all the scriptures on leadership in the Bible. There are very few. Because the Bible doesn't really teach leadership so much as it teaches servanthood. And it suggests that there are two kinds of servants. There are leading servants, in our case, our pastor, our elders. There are following servants, but we're all servants. All right, here they are, all six orders. Number one, move out from your positions. Number two, know the way you are to go. Three, go where you've never been before. Four, don't be too cozy with the Lord. Five, people, dedicate yourselves. Six, leaders, lead. If we will follow these orders, be prepared. God will do amazing things among us.